The sermon text this morning is found in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Very good reading, Danielle. Nobody wanted to read that passage, so... Of course, they couldn't have understood it if you mispronounced it anyway, so that's the good news. Well, many of you may know the expression declinism, declinism. That, that is, declinism is generally, um, it's an expression used by those who are older. Uh, declinism is that idea that the future isn't as bright as the past and things aren't getting any better, they're getting worse. And this is something that those who are usually older than 60 are always saying, it's not as good as it used to be. And declinism has always been part of an older language, but what they're thinking is declinism, how things are declining, whether it be political or religious or whether it be economic or cultural, it's now moving into the language of those who are much younger. And they're beginning to see the same kind of picture, that everything's declining. Our future might not be brighter. It might be actually darker. And it's leaving people very, very uncertain. And I wanted you to recognize that this kind of declinism is, is uh, it's not to be a threat to the church. The church has existed in difficult times before and has thrived in them. You know, if you've been with us in this letter in 2 Timothy, you see that there's been pressure on the church from outside. There's been pressure on the church from inside. And yet Paul has encouraged Timothy to continue to endure. You know, when you come to a passage like this, if most of us were honest, we usually fly over these scriptures. You know, it's just the end of the letter. It's no big deal. You read it really quick. And yet we're given here kind of a a unique glimpse into the early church, both the, the, the encouragements, but also the struggles. 
You know, you see faithfulness, but you see faithlessness. You see endurance, and yet you see wandering away. You see this mixture of both. The challenge to the church, it's we're often a mixed bag, kind of a work in progress. But you see not just in the challenge to the church, you see the hope of the church, particularly in verses 17 to 19, when Paul speaks about Christ at his side. So in kind of wrapping up this letter, I want to draw your minds to these. These are just personal comments and concerns that Paul makes, but there's a lot of material in here. So first I want to look at the challenge to the church, the challenge to the church, which is you see some encouragement, you see some discouragement. We face the same thing. And then with the hope of the church, and the hope of the church is Christ in him standing at our side. So look with me at 9 to 15. He says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love of the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So folks, there's nine names in there. There's encouragements in there, and there are challenges in there. Uh, Paul's kind of, he's not going to speak to the details on every single individual, and we don't have all those. But through them, we kind of get a picture of the nature of the church. So look at the encouragements with me first. Notice Paul is saying to Timothy, come to see me. Uh, the implication we're going to see twice, he says, come to visit me. The implication is Paul's lonely. I mean, Paul is alone. And part of that loneliness is caused by sending Crescens uh, to Galatia. We don't know who Crescens is. We assume that he's being sent on some ministry context because he's mentioned with Titus. Now, Titus, if you remember that name, there's a New Testament letter after him. He was sent to Crete initially, and he was sent by Paul to put the church in order, to bring organization, establishing elders and deacons and the like. He's come back from Crete, and you see him being sent now to Dalmatia, part of the Asia Minor. And so Paul's sending these men to continue ministry work as like missionaries, helping the churches. Uh, to survive. You see Luke, that name is familiar to you because the gospel's named after him. He is with Paul alone. <clears throat> so Luke, you don't hear a lot about Luke, although he wrote the gospel and he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. He's the writer. He's the secretary, probably the secretary for this letter. The thing about Luke is you don't hear anything because he's always doing the writing and yet he's faithful. He's remained with Paul through thick and through thin. He has been faithful in great trial and adversity. And then you read about Mark. You know, Mark, who's John? Mark is probably the same John Mark. There's a gospel that he wrote. But remember with Mark, Mark early on followed the Lord, went with Paul on the first missionary journey. But in Acts 13, he leaves in the middle of the first missionary journey. He departs. It turns out later, and we're not told why, he just leaves. In Acts 15, when Barnabas and Paul are preparing for the second missionary journey, Barnabas wants to bring Mark 
And Paul says, I won't have them. He left last time. I'm not going to have them. And that caused a separation between you know, Paul and Barnabas were serving as missionaries. Now it's Paul and Silas. It's Barnabas and Mark. So he, he had failed and Paul wouldn't have him back. But here you see him in the text. So what's that mean? It means he's been reconciled. He's been restored. He's been forgiven. They have made up. Now he's called a co-worker with Paul. That's encouragement to us that have faded away or perhaps fallen off. There's a pathway back with God. And then you see the name Tychicus. Tychicus was with Paul in a number of missionary journeys, mentioned in three New Testament letters. Uh, he is being sent to Ephesus, presumably with this letter. Paul is, Luke is being the secretary. Tychicus is going to bring it to Ephesus where Timothy is. And he'll go there so that Timothy can go visit Paul. And then, of course, Paul, Paul speaks about Timothy. Come visit me and get my cloak. Now, of course, winter is coming, so cold is coming. He would probably, Paul was probably arrested in Troas. And so being arrested, you're not going to collect your things together. He was hauled off. He left his cloak. It would have been probably wool, been like a poncho with a hole in the top. It would be the only protection against the elements in a prison. Remember now, prisons didn't have food and heat and running water. So it would have been a needed garment. But also the, the books and the parchments. Books, maybe scrolls with uh, portions of the Old Testament in it, parchments. They were these, vel these vellum sheets made from animal skins. And perhaps the, the sayings of Jesus were recorded on it, or maybe a letter that Paul had started, but he wanted to continue his work even though he is there in prison. So you see these examples, seven out of the nine names, they were faithful. They endured in difficult times. So folks, for you, you know, you anticipate challenging times ahead. You see examples here. They're given to us to help us so we might see them and say, I can be faithful as well. The same grace of God given to them will be given to me. I will be found faithful. But with those encouragements, we do see some points of disappointment, don't we? I mean, Paul even calls them out by name. He wants to prepare Timothy. Then in every church, there are going to be disappointments and difficulties that you face. And we see two names. Demas is one of them. Uh, Demas, by the way, you might know that name. Uh, he is recorded a couple times in the New Testament. He was faithful. He journeyed with Paul. In fact, in Colossians 4.14, uh, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Demas was in the inner circle with Paul. He was a leader. But what it says is, Demas deserted me because he was in love with this present world. The word desert means to leave at a critical juncture. You know, when, when, the, when the fire is the hottest, then they leave. Probably when Paul got in prison, he took off. And this is, he was, a, he was a big name. He was a leader. He was in the game. And now he's not. And we're not told why exactly. Why did he go back to Thessalonica? Well, you can imagine. He's in love with the present world. Was it security? Was he tired of the ministry? Was he tired of the hardship? Was he facing things that you face that begin to cause our faith to waver? Did he want security and significance? Was it, was it a woman? Was it homesickness? It's interesting that he says he's in love with the present age. Because remember, just last week, those who receive a crown of righteousness are those who are in love with his appearing or the new age coming. 
we are to be in love with that age. Demas is in love with this age. It's really kind of a warning for us. We don't know what happened to Demas. We don't know that he returned. John Calvin thought he may have returned, but we don't know. It's a warning that misplaced affections can make a mature man in the faith waver and desert. In other words, those things that you love, those things that you pursue, those things can lead you away. I'm about to start a book by James Smith called You Are What You Love. You are what you love. Depending upon what you love is what you pursue and it's what you become. You are what you love. What do you love the new age that's coming? What do you love most? Is it, is it, is it recognition? Is it security? Is it relational joy? Is it pleasure? What do you love most? You know, it's a good question to be asking ourselves all the time. It's kind of like, you know, every year or more frequently, you know, I speak about do you love God more? The reason I do that is because we pick things up. It's like we're boats in the water just kind of attracting barnacles to the hull of the boat. And every year you have to scrape the barnacles off. Otherwise, they get on there really permanently and very difficult to remove. So the issue is, what do you love? For Damis, he was in love with this present world. But notice the other discouraging name is Alexander. Now, Alexander was a coppersmith. He worked with metal. We don't know exactly what he did. He could have made all kinds of implements or even, uh, even idols. But this Alexander, we don't know exactly. He could have been from chapter 1. It was a common name at the time. You can imagine Alexander the Great. They want to name their children after him. So this, this Alexander, though, most, most likely is in, the, uh, is in the first chapter. He was the one who made shipwreck of his faith excommunicated from the church, and now he's standing in opposition to Paul. But notice what Paul says. So he's one of the faithful, now he's turned, and he's opposing that which he promoted. And Paul says the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul's not fretting, he's not nervous, he's not seeking to defend himself, he's silent, he's just saying the Lord's going to deal with it. There's a confidence in that final day making wrongs right. But, but I do want you to notice the balance here because Paul says to Timothy, but you be on guard. You be careful. So it's, it's the end time judgment bringing about reconciliation of all things doesn't mean that we don't use wisdom in this world. So think of Jesus saying, be gentle as a dove, but be wise as a serpent. I think that's what he's saying here. So when you see these two names, Demas and Alexander, uh, along with these encouraging names, what do we find? We find that we're a mixed bag, right? We are a work in progress. Uh, It's a picture of the church, isn't it? Uh, There are some real high points and points of great joy, but there is with us challenges and difficulties. So so what should we do with this? Well, let me give you a few takeaways here. Uh, Because if this is a view of the church, then how do we take this view and help us to understand our own kind of experience in the church? And I've got a few takeaways. Number one would be expect hardships in the Christian faith and ministry. You ought to expect hardships in the ministry and in the faith. Look at Paul, for example. Would you consider his ministry a success? 
take our, the way we grade ministries now, is his ministry a success? He's in jail. His friends have left him. They've wandered away. They've deserted him. Some are actively opposing him, challenging him. The churches that he's planted, uh, they are not producing massive fruit. They all are probably living on the edge. Would you say his ministry is a success? Most of us would say not. I mean, he's being criticized. He's being questioned. Now with the eyes of faith, we say, oh, he was a great success. But it didn't look like that. So we've got to be careful, uh, careful about how we measure success in ministry. I think a lot of us come into the Christian faith. I know that Carol and I did. We come into the Christian faith thinking that because of the glory of Christ and his power, that, that the Christian life and the Christian ministry is going to be victory after victory. It will be marked by overcoming and overcoming. That there shouldn't be discouragements. There shouldn't be depression. There shouldn't be discomfort. There shouldn't be struggles and hardships in times of doubt. We shouldn't have those things. Well, friends, I would say that's not the picture you have here. There is that push and pull in faith. Look at Paul, for example. Twice he says, come and visit me. Come soon. He's not just asking for a soon visit because it's going to be cold. He's lonely. He needs friendship. I mean, Paul is isolated. Paul is at least honest with his people of his own fragility, that he's made of dust. Paul knows that he struggles in life. We make Paul a Hercules of people. We, we almost make him not human. Consider this, what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, that is, fighting from forces outside of the Christian faith. And he says, and fear within. So he speaks about his own fear. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul's saying, I was downcast. I was downcast, and God used the friendship from Titus to comfort me. It's not that God couldn't do it with the Spirit. God could, but he uses friendships, relationships to strengthen one another in this walk. I think about Charles Spurgeon, the great Spurgeon said, I've suffered many times from severe sickness and frightful mental depression, seeking almost to disrepair. Almost every year I've been laid aside for a season, for flesh and blood cannot bear the strain, at least such flesh and blood as mine. I believe, however, the affliction was necessary to me and has answered many good ends. You see Spurgeon enduring the difficulty of life, fighting to understand it theologically and living by faith. But I want you to see the Christian life. This is not, it's not a, a shiny people experience as a Christian. It is a battle that we're in. And, and we battle against flesh and blood, powers and principalities. We battle against the, the struggle that we have in our own lives and the forces that come at us. An older theologian in the 19th century says, man is not for one moment denaturalized by grace. Let me say that again. Man is not for one moment denaturalized by grace. What that means is we can have the grace of God through the gospel, but that doesn't make us 
denaturalized or any, any less subject to the natural struggles and trials as we walk in this life by in the flesh. So, so we need friendships. We need each other. It's difficult. And, and I would say this particularly to men. Women, I think, by nature are more effective at developing relationships that are supportive and encouraging and comforting. Men, we not so. It's easier for us to kind of wall up and harden up and not be as willing to express our weaknesses and our needs. But I'll tell you, and we think under the banner of leadership that if you show weakness, they won't follow you. May I just challenge that? And may I say that weakness actually it makes you more realistic to follow, and it makes you more realizable. In other words, they can see themselves following you. So, so there's this sense, particularly men, uh, that, that we need these kinds of friendships because life is difficult. Life is difficult in ministry, and life is difficult in the Christian faith, and it's going to have hardships. And you see the very apostle, the writer of the New Testament, a bulk of it, saying, would you please visit me? So, so there's a lesson for us there, the hardships in ministry. Secondly, I, I would remind you that we can see to value partnerships. Paul wasn't a lone ranger. He didn't do it all. I have the spirit. I've been called an apostle. And so it's all under my charge. You see what he's doing here. He's sending Crescens to Galatia. He's sending Titus to Dalmatia. He's calling for John Mark. He's asking Timothy to come. He's like a field general. He's moving players around. He knows that the advancement of the church is through. Through people, people that have been gifted by God, that have been called by God out of darkness to light, and who have been gifted by the Spirit to do work. You know, it was Paul who wrote in Philippians, may I hear that you're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, the church is advanced not simply through a pulpit ministry, but it's through the membership of a church utilizing their gifts both encouraging one another, but also serving the outside community by preaching the gospel and by living the gospel. And, and so it's, it's, Paul sees that a healthy church has a wide distribution of workers using their gifts. So ask yourself, if everybody did, in terms of ministry, what I do for this church, would we be stronger or weaker? So whatever you do or don't do, if that was mirrored by everybody else, would we be in a stronger situation or would we be on oxygen? So, so, so this idea of we have to value partnerships. If we're going to endure, we have to be, expect hard times, but we also have to be engaging with the gifts that God has given to you for his glory, in some capacity, seeking the spiritual good of other people. And then thirdly, I think we have to keep learning. We have to pursue growth. You see, Paul, I, I mean, we would glaze right over this, but when Paul says, bring me the books and parchments, he probably has three months left to live, but he wants books and parchments. I mean, why? Well, he wants to keep learning. He wants to keep studying. I think many of us, when we come to faith, we're more... Yeah, we're more desirous of learning about God. So we're reading the Bible, we're doing Bible studies. And then when you kind of get to a mature level of knowledge, you don't read as much anymore. You don't pick up as many books. And yet here's Paul, the apostle, still wanting to read, even though he, his death is imminent. Spurgeon, of course, had a, just a hilarious word over this. He says, even an apostle must read. He's inspired, and yet he wants books. He has been preaching at least 30 years, and he wants books. 
He had seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He had been caught up to the third heaven and has heard things which are unspeakable, and yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. Friends, you know, Dalton just gave a kind of a, a word to you on that bookstall. We're just trying to cull through. There's a lot of books to read. A lot of them are probably less helpful than others. But I encourage you, to what degree would you want books if you were dying? If you received a note from the doctor uh, that you have just found a mass and you've got, would you want books? Would you turn to the scriptures? I mean, I mean, here Paul is setting for us, and we want to be people of the book, but we also want to be people of books. It'll help strengthen us. It'll keep us on point. It'll keep our minds calibrated to the truth of God. We drink deeply from the culture. Books, the scriptures, they help. They help calibrate us to what is true and right and good and noble and honorable and redemptive. And then the last thing I would say is the disappointment. You know, you have to prepare for disappointment. I hate to say it that way. I'm sad over people when they desert or when they oppose or they kind of fade away. But we do have in this example Demas and Alexander. It shouldn't shock us is what I'm saying. Jesus said that there will be disappointments in ministry. We're going to lose friends. They're going to wander away. They may oppose. Jesus says in Matthew 13, in the parable of the soils, he says, And what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In other words, Jesus is saying the word that's been sown, it's going to, it's going to get in the ground, and it's going to begin to produce something visually. But the worries of the world, the difficulties, or the deceitfulness of riches, that is the, the, the love for the present age, it's going to choke the word so it won't be fruitful. He's explaining to us why people will wander, why they depart, why they oppose the faith. Maybe it's trials in their life. Maybe they haven't been handled well in the church. Maybe someone hasn't treated them kindly. Or maybe they've been successful and they begin to taste what the world has to offer. And they begin to want, there's a lot of reasons why people leave the church and why they leave the faith. I don't say it without sadness, but I just say it as a means of preparing us that this is not to shock us. You know, there were many notable conver- deconversions, I would say, over the past 15 years. A lot of people deconvert that you know their names, and a lot of times people will come up and say, what does that mean? They've de- I- I've listened to their sermons. You know, I- I've read their books, and yet they've deconverted. Folks, it's right here. Paul experienced it. It's part of every, it's part of the church age. I don't say that lightly. I'm just saying, as kind of a warning to us, Demas, Alexander, they stand as poster children for us to be mindful, to be aware. You know, Paul warns us in 1 Timothy, he says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's why I say we are what we love. Right? We, we just want to be mindful of that. Now, if you're sitting here and you fear that, or maybe, maybe you feel like Mark. 
Maybe you feel like, well, I was in ministry, and now I'm not in ministry, and, and, and what do I do? Friends, this is the glory of Christ. You know, th there is always the return, right? We have the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, if there's any passage in Scripture that encourages, that bids you to return, then it's that one, the Father. You're wondering about, well, how will God respond if I do begin to make a return? Well, you see how he responds. He runs out there, a man to run in, a, in the garments of the day would have been just, yeah, it would have been frowned upon. And to give the ring and to throw a party and to kill the fatted calf. God is inviting us. Perhaps you feel like a Demas. Maybe you feel like you've moved into the world. You have drunk from the, from the waters of the world and you have not found them satisfying. And you want to come back, but I don't know how. Repent. Repent and return. Repent, ask God for his forgiveness and move back into fellowship and back into ministry. So, friends, the, the beautiful thing about the scriptures is they're always meant to both comfort those who are afflicted, but they're also to, in some ways, afflict those who are too comforted. Always providing them a way back. And you see that here. So here you have kind of a picture of the church, right? So through 9 through 15, you see this picture of the church. It's marked by encouragements, but there's also some discouragements. And so there's that tension that we live in. So what do we do with that? Well, we look to the one that they look to. So in the context of desertions, we find one, if you look with me at 17 and 19, we find one who didn't desert us. And it's this, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so what Paul's doing is he's, so he's saying, hey, this is the nature of the church. And he's saying, this is the nature of Jesus Christ. So Paul, at his first defense, uh, usually in Roman courts, there were two trials. One was like a preliminary hearing, like a grand jury. And then there would be a second hearing. And you would often be allowed to bring an advocate or to bring a witness for your defense when you, when you came before the tribunal. Well, in Paul's case, there was nobody to stand with him. No one. He says, they all deserted me. Friends, this is, I think, for me, one of the saddest verses in Scripture. I mean, the great apostle Paul, the, the apostle that we revere, nobody, they all deserted him. And remember that same word for desert means left in a time of crises? Not one. Remember back in chapter 115, it says they all departed from me in Asia Minor? I mean, he's all alone. I mean, just the weight of that. But then he says, but the Lord stood by me. In other words, here he is, the great apostle. And he says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. What's he saying here? Well, you know, Paul, when he was called on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, God said, you're going to be a witness to the Gentiles. You will take the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and Paul knew that. And so when he said, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, what he's saying is, that, that God has brought Paul to a place where he is doing what God said. No one is stopping God's plan in Paul's life. And he's, many scholars think he's testifying to Emperor Nero. 
to the, to the king of the Gentiles, if you will. Paul is being, and he's fulfilling his ministry. Because notice what he says here. He strengthened me. He didn't get removed from the trials. A lot of times when we read a passage, he stood by me and strengthened me. And we think that's kind of like, I get delivered. I get removed. If I have cancer, I get healed. If I have trouble, I get it corrected. The deliverance and the strengthening that God did was so that he could proclaim through Paul, proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul sees himself strictly in the hand of God. Now, we look at it like he's before a tribunal and he's, he's kind of, he's in deep trouble, if you will. And he says, no, no, no. No, he strengthened me so that I could continue to do what he called me to do, which is preach the gospel. I mean, this is a different way of looking at deliverance, isn't it? I mean, I mean generally we want removal from problems, not strength to endure to be faithful through the problem. And yet that's what we see here. He's testifying to God enabling him to do what he didn't think he could do, but God was enabling him to do it. I think that's what he means by being saved from the lion's mouth. What is the lion's mouth? Well, some think Nero, the emperor at the time. Some think Satan. Some think death. I don't think it was death because he knew he was going to die. What does it mean that he was rescued? Well, I think he was rescued. Notice he said, rescued from every evil deed. He was delivered so as to preach the gospel, even in the most difficult of contexts. What he's doing here, the lion's mouth, I think he's, it's a reference. I think he's recalling Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is a Messianic psalm. Jesus used this psalm when he was being deserted. Uh, when he was, was going to Jerusalem, knowing that his end would come, he's putting himself in Jesus' position in the sense of, I'm suffering with him. I'm suffering like him. Think about it for a minute. Uh, Jesus, even though he knew he would die in Jerusalem, didn't stop the journey. Paul knew that he would die in Rome, didn't stop his journey. Jesus was deserted by his, by his friends. Uh, Paul was deserted by his friends. Uh, Jesus said, do not you know, forgive them. They know not what they do from the cross. Paul says, don't hold it against them. You see Paul walking out the same suffering as Jesus Christ. And you see him effectively carrying out the mission, just like Jesus carried out the message. In spite of the hardship and the shame of the cross, for the joy he endured it all. You see the same thing with, with Paul. And that's why he says, to him be glory forever. Forever and ever, because it's Jesus strengthening him. Friends, do you, do you see the power of Christ in your life? Do you see his presence? Some of you, do you feel alone, deserted, abandoned? Do you know that you have one to whom you can turn, who will never desert you, who will never leave you nor forsake you? You know, David, in Psalm 16, 8, I read this psalm all the time when I'm feeling pressed. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Do you believe that? Now, if you're a Christian here, I'm calling you to faith. Do you believe in the presence of God that Christ is before you? You will not be shaken. That doesn't mean you won't suffer, but you will endure it faithfully and redemptively. Do you believe that? Do you struggle with fear over how you're going to walk out the faith? And does this not encourage you? 
that you have one who will stand by you to help you endure. And not just to endure, but to endure redemptively. What I want you to see is that Paul saw this perseverance as persevering in declaring the gospel. Many of us fear sharing the gospel with people. Uh, We don't know we may be abandoned or deserted. Our friends may leave us. They may mock us. They may marginalize us. Uh, This is for us. Friends, we're the ones who are called to declare the message of hope to people. And yet we are timid over this. This is encouragement. He will stand by you and strengthen you to speak the nature of the truth of the gospel to people. With your neighbors, with those whom, with whom you work. You know, we're having the holidays come up. All kinds of family comes in town, which is always, it's a circus when the family comes in town. And people are all over the place. It really is. It's just a circus when people come together. But here we have an opportunity to speak to the gospel. And we get timid, but now we have a text to encourage us. You know, it was Jesus who said in Matthew 16, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a passage spoken not just to Peter, but it's to all the apostles and all the disciples. And the disciples would have told the next disciples that followed them, giving us the key. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church. The gospel will go forth no matter what trial you face. And I'm giving you the keys. That means that the church has the gospel. The gospel frees people from darkness, bringing them into the kingdom of light. As we preach the gospel and people believe, the keys to loose people from the bounds of Satan to be freed. And the gospel also binds. Those who reject the gospel are re- and those who reject Christ are rejecting God. That's a warning for all of us even here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the gospel is seen to loose you to God and you refuse the gospel and you're bound from God. I mean, think about us. How many of us believe the gospel right now? You know, all the threats that Paul faced... The imprisonment, right? The, the desertions and the opposition. And yet the gospel went forth, didn't it? Nothing stopped it. No evil deed stopped the gospel. And then Paul's disciples, they had their own deserters. They had their own opposers. They had their own imprisonments. And yet what? The gospel kept going. And here we are, evidence that the gospel will not be thwarted. That he will stand by us and strengthen us. So that's the hope we're to have. That when you speak about the gospel to people... It may be a hundred times. It will not be thwarted. He will stand by and strengthen us even in sufferings. And do you also realize the importance of the fellowship? Uh, Our relationships in here in our perseverance. I, I, I mean, look at how he ends in 19 to 22. He goes through these names, Prisca, Aquila, Rastus, Trephemus, you know, Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia. You see all the, who are these people? They're like you and me. I mean, they're human beings. They're believing in the gospel. But notice what Paul's doing. He's dying and he's telling Timothy, hey, greet Priscilla and Aquila for me, would you? They were friends. They co-ministered together. They lived together for part of a time. They preached the gospel together. 
Here he is on the verge of death, and he wants them to be encouraged. Why? Because they're part of the same body. And then he's saying, hey, these brothers and sisters in Rome, they send their greetings to you. Here are these two cities separated by the Adriatic Sea. They're sending greetings to one. But why? Because we're one body. Becoming a Christian isn't some personal transaction you have with Jesus. It's coming by faith to a Messiah who saves and draws us in with his other, with his other people, with his, those who have come to faith. In other words, we are one, and our fellowship is around one, Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us this relationship, but it's this relationship which helps us magnify him. We need each other to magnify him. So he saves us, draws us in, and then in our relationships, I, I, I'm amazed at Paul. I, I, I hope when I am told, if I had this opportunity, that you have six months left to live. I, I hope I walk out the same way of this kind of, the fellowship is central to me to persevere. That, that I need, I remember we, we lost a dear brother, I think it's been 12 years now, and uh, he had cancer and he would come he didn't want to stop worshiping. And so he'd come, and then he couldn't walk as well, and then he couldn't walk at all, and then he had to be carried, and then he had to be... But, but he wanted to come all the way until the end. Why? Because of the nature of the fellowship. The, 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 Paul here, at the end of his life, he's sending greetings back and forth. It's so essential to us. So we've come to the end of this letter about this perseverance. Paul giving the baton to Timothy calling him to be faithful, faithful to Christ. So let's just take a moment now and, and consider these truths that we've heard over these past nine weeks and ask God for grace. Friends, ask him for the spirit. You know, Paul says to Timothy, I want you to see this in the last verse. He said, the Lord be with your spirit. So I think that was singular. So Paul is saying, Timothy, you specifically, the Lord be with your spirit. So so I will not be here, Timothy, but the Lord's Spirit will. But then notice what the last phrase is. He says, grace be with you. That word you is plural. So it's for the church. So he had a word for Timothy. He had a word for us. The grace will be given to us that we can do all that he has said in these letters. So let's ask God for grace to walk in this. And, uh, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment. Father, I do thank you for your word. I pray that by your spirit applying your word to our souls that we would be conformed more and more into uh, the image of your son. Father, grant uh, to all those before me and myself a greater desire for the word, to be changed by it, to be affected by it, and to preach it. Lord, may we be a people of great courage Father, while there may be fear that we are confronted by, uh, would you give us the faith, Father, by your grace, to know that the Lord himself will stand by us and strengthen us to speak to those in our life of the glory of Christ, 
that he has come to save by laying down his own life that we might be reconciled to you. And Father, for those that are before me that are still seeking to find meaning and purpose out of the things of this world, would you dry up their satisfaction? Would you grant to them a, a distaste that they would have a hunger and a thirst for things that have meaning and value and permanence and eternality? That they would find these things that you have spoken of, Father, to be true and right and firm and fixed, healing for our souls, strengthening for us, causing us to endure. So, Father, be glorified as we as a church might walk in this kind of measure, that we might display your wisdom to a world that's lost, unhappy, constantly hungry in our satisfaction. May we lead them to you, Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.